Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Harry Draypush. Today, we're honored to welcome Jack Ampuja to the podcast. Jack has held logistics and operations leadership roles at five Fortune 500 companies. Today, he leads a boutique consulting firm, which has completed more than 500 packaging optimization projects for manufacturers, importers, and e-commerce distributors. There are some huge cost savings opportunities associated with packaging optimization and e-commerce, and we're anxious to dive into the details with Jack. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Harry, great to be with you again. A long-time relationship that I'm looking forward to building on some more today. Great. And now you've held broad supply chain responsibilities for large global firms. Why did you gravitate towards shipment packaging as a career focus? Like so many things in life, it's an unintended consequence that I'm a logistician, like many of the people you deal with, Harry, that dealing with warehousing, transportation. That was my forte. And almost by accident, I went up to Toronto to speak maybe 20 years ago, and I sat beside one of the guys that founded the company and introduced himself as a consultant. And I was a little short with him saying, I've met a lot of consultants. And he assured me he was different at that point. I was ready to throw him under the bus saying, every consultant assures me of that. So how are you different? He said, we come at it through the packaging. We actually make the packaging more efficient, and that drives handling storage at freight cost. And my response was, son of a gun, I've never heard of that before. So uh, anyway, we entered into a dialogue, and he asked if he could come to my employer, which at that point was a large frozen foods manufacturer, and could they take a look at our boxes to see if there was an opportunity. I asked for a reference, and he directed me to Snyder's of Hanover regional potato chip pretzel manufacturer, not far from your stomping grounds, or your old stomping grounds. And the guy there gave me two comments. He said, number one, these guys can really do what they claim. It's not just hot air. And number two, you're an experienced executive, but they're going to show you how to take out costs in ways you've never thought of. So that was enough for me. I brought them into my employer and we jointly walked the floor at the factory in Buffalo, Frozen Foods, and we picked out 15 different products we gave them our buying spec for the boxes, gave them samples of the 15 boxes, and then filled out a cost sheet. What does it cost to handle, to store, to ship? Usual logistics driver sent that all off with them to Toronto, where they were based. I had no idea what to expect, but when they came back and laid out the report and said, if you make these 15 boxes the right size, you're looking at $1.8 million in annual cost reduction. That's when I became a disciple of the process. You know, you uh, you told me many, many, many years ago that box salesmen generally sell what's good for the box manufacturer and not necessarily what's so good for the customer. And the outside dimensions of a box or the cube inside the box is not necessarily, how did you phrase it? Different dimensions can yield the same cubic size inside the box. And those outside dimensions drive a lot of cost. Yeah, I've got some examples in my file, Harry, of exactly that comment that because it's really the uh, cube utilization inside the box. So how much cube do you have to work with and how successful are you at using that cube? But there are a lot of variables that, um, in fact, one of the numbers that I've learned, I think since you and I last connected, Harry, I, I wish I'd been smart enough to learn this 20 years ago. But if you take 12 rectangles, let's say 12 boxes of Band-Aids, 12 cereal boxes, 12 cell phones, 12 rectangles, and you put them into a box. And typically, the item doesn't care whether it's on the edge, on the face, or on the bottom. 
it's going to perform the same way when it gets to the destination. But the point is that 12 rectangles in a master box generate 325 possible solutions on how to put the 12 rectangles into the box and how to put the box on the pallet. So the basic question is, how many of those 325 does a typical company look at before they make a decision? And my experience is they stop at the very first one that works. And uh, the whole exercise ends right there, leaving scads of potential dollars on the table because they didn't want to do the research or the analysis. So I think you may have just answered the next question I was going to ask you, which is what are the biggest mistakes you see online sellers make? Well, you, you've already touched on one, and that's relying on the wrong person for advice. That What I've found with companies is that when, when we talk about supply chain, and I'm a veteran like you are, Harry, so you know pretty well what makes up the supply chain because you deal with those issues every day like I do. But when it comes to packaging, that's kind of a bastard child that uh, everybody recognizes transportation, warehousing, inventory management, stock rotation, things like that. But packaging tends to be a bastard child in corporate America, elsewhere in the world, too. So what tends to happen is that consumer products firms, they assume just because of experience, bias, they stick it under marketing. Saying, well, marketing makes the basic decision on the retail product, and therefore the packaging is an extension of that decision. So let them make that decision. And then when you move over to industrial firms, they tend to view it as an engineering process. And what I've learned, unfortunately, is that if someone has an engineering title, the assumption is that this guy or woman must know about packaging. So I've seen facility engineers, industrial engineers, electrical engineers, anyone with an engineering title, they stick packaging onto that person's plate. We had one particular client. They built a special electronic unit that was about the size of a dorm refrigerator. It was loaded with electronics for the aviation industry. I think it was a test unit. You'd plug some things in and run some tests on the airplane. Well, this company, they were located north of New York City, and they would ship this stuff around the world. So it would get to a place like India, and it would be broken. And each unit was worth around $300,000. So the basic question was, do I rely on somebody in a foreign country who's never dealt with my $300,000 unit? Do I let them try to fix it? Number two, can they find the parts? Maybe they can't. Do I return the whole thing to origin and ship it the same way that caused the damage the first time? Or do I fly an engineer from my home base out to the foreign country and hope he can find parts and bring this thing back to life? So when we asked the client, how did you ever get this box to begin with? Uh, research and a laboratory proved that that box that they had created for this unit was incapable of routine ocean movement, where a ship is going up and down, back and forth, to and fro. And so the answer was that, well, we had a aeronautical engineer in the company, we assumed if he could fly an airplane, he could build a box. Well, those are two different sciences. I can fly an airplane. I can't build a box. Yep, I know you can, Harry. You know I can fly an airplane. You also know I can't build a box. It's really kind of astounding that uh, you look at an innocuous box and how many things downstream from an expense perspective it can actually drive, right? You, you just think you're kind of putting the item in the box, you're protecting it, you're shipping it, you're giving it to a carrier. And that's really the end of the cost of the box. But to your point, there's 325 different combinations of putting those uh, those 12 items in a box or sizing it differently. That would make a, a, a huge difference in cost, both for the box itself, right, and for the way you transport it. Sure. Yeah, the box ultimately is small potatoes in the supply chain. That The way we look at it is that if you take a dollar of supply chain cost, perhaps 10 cents out of the dollar goes to the box. 
maybe 25 to 30 cents goes to the warehouse, the business that you're in, because there's handling, storage, uh, labor costs, so on. And then the big Miguel is freight. So 60, 65 cents out of that dollar goes to the freight. So people ask me all the time, or skeptics say, well, gee, how can you guys, you're a small potatoes group, Jack, how can you guys ever hope to compete against a big box manufacturer? Well, the box manufacturer focuses on 10 cents. I focus on the other 90. It's a lot easier to find savings out of the 90 than it is out of the 10. So we beat them on a very regular basis because we have a different perspective. We look at how the box performs in the logistics cycle. We don't look at the box on how it's built. as That isn't as important to us as what it does to the other costs. What's the lowest hanging fruit for e-commerce brands when it comes to reducing fulfillment costs? And what's the cost saving potential? Yeah, e-commerce is a different animal. It's an extremely complex situation. And and it's not that people are, are stupid or, or try to ignore the problem. Most companies can see the problem. They just don't know what to do about it. And most competent executives, when I go to visit them, they've already stood on the packing line and they've watched boxes. They see boxes with perhaps a flash drive put into a box the size of a bread box. I've got examples galore. People mail me box. They send me pictures. They hold boxes for me when I go to visit them. In fact, I've got so many boxes in my office. My sister-in-law one time whispered to my wife that Jack's kind of a pack rat. When he's not looking, throw all that junk out the door. And my wife said, my God, you can't do that. That's the gold mine. That's how he makes his living. But the obvious issue and looking at the numbers, Harry, you've already picked up that the 325 possible solutions. That's for a manufactured product. It's more complex in e-commerce that let's take a sort of an average size company. They might have 20, 25,000 SKUs. And then you order two or three of them. My wife orders some other combination. I order some other makeup of those items. And what happens is that the 25,000 SKUs in one year, will blow up into over a million combinations of weight and cube coming out the door. That doesn't surprise you as a warehouseman. The real question is, how many boxes do you need to satisfy over a million combinations of weight and cube? That's the difficulty. Then when I raise this question, the usual answer is, well, I know it's more than one, but it's less than a million. Well, there, there are quite a few numbers between one and a million. And most people know inherently that that's where the issue is. Well, how do they tackle it? That's the big, that's the big problem right there. And there is a tremendous bias among e-commerce, particularly uh, big companies, to try to have as few boxes as possible. I, I visited one office supply house that'll go unnamed. They were on a mission to create one perfect box. They were going to find the, the best box in the universe, and that box was going to satisfy every customer shipment that ever came down the pipeline. Uh, I don't think anyone on the face of the earth can live long enough to make that solution come to reality. So there, there tends to be a bias at around six boxes, uh, because that's about all that the human brain can capture in a manual operation. If I gave a typical order packer 35 boxes, when would he use number 33 and when would he use number 29? The human brain cannot compute that. We can all figure out the difference between five or six boxes, but when the number goes higher, you really need technology to help you. And, and then certainly, by uh, you're in the midst of this, Harry, as a leading-edge company, leading Amware, that technology is the key. Technology separates the winners from the losers. So e-commerce is a perfect application. Companies with technology and willingness to invest and use the technology, they have a decided edge over companies that try to do it by the seat of their pants and just do it through forced labor. It's kind of amazing because before you had mentioned about the six boxes that typically is what a customer uses, I would tell you that we have 250 active customers at Amware. And they probably have 
300 to 400 SKUs on average, but six boxes per customer is probably the right number that I wind up with all the time. So it's kind of, I guess they get there by just happenstance and you get there mathematically. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's happenstance. That six seems like a pretty good number. Two or three doesn't seem like enough. And then once you hit more than six, it becomes a real exercise for the human brain. I think both of us would consider ourselves to be pretty intelligent guys, but when do you use number eight or number 10? We can't tell. There's just too many variables in there. I went to one company and I quoted the six as a kind of a standard unit of measure in warehousing. And this guy was pretty pleased. He said, well, you've got that wrong. I said, well, what do you use? He said, well, we use five. Great. (laughs) How about brands that ship sturdy, lighter products? Should they be taking advantage of poly bags to bring down the package weight and parcel costs? Oh, poly bags are a wonderful solution that uh, we're working on a big department store right now that does a lot of textiles, women's dresses, suits. They've got some really high-end things that are hand-packed, wrapped in paper, and so on, that uh, if you're selling an $800 dress or a $1,500 men's suit, you're not just dropping it into a into an envelope or a box. You really want to handle it with, with kid gloves and really, really fine presence and good quality. But in general, that kind of solution that if you can make envelopes or poly bags work for you, that's an unbeatable solution because it provides very good protection and there's virtually no wasted cube. Obviously, uh, you need to start looking at which what products you're shipping. You can't put a breakable, but for textiles, uh, it's, it's, it's a super solution. Yeah, we have uh, probably about a half a dozen of our 250 customers make use of uh, pad packs and poly bags. Generally, in the nutraceuticals, when you're shipping the plastic, uh, you know, bottles, they hold up well. Mm-hmm. And then, right for apparel, they they, they go they go well into a, a pad pack or a poly bag. Right, they're not going to get damaged for the most part. So we're seeing that. There's great savings to be had on the parcel side when they do that. Yeah, I've got some photos in my file, Harry. That makes you wonder. And again, I I won't name any specific companies because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I've got some really great photos, a pair of socks, athletic socks from a worldwide brand put into a box. And then there are three poly bags put in with the socks to protect the socks. So I'm going to go to my grave wondering why you need poly bags to protect the socks. So there's just a lot of uh, miscommunication, misconception that there are very few people that I've ever crossed paths with who come to work to screw things up. They come to work to give you an honest day's work and to do the best they can. But many times they're misguided. They do the wrong things for the right reasons. They want to do the right thing, but they really don't know how or what because they've been trained poorly. And the one example that comes to mind, I will mention a specific company, uh, Fisher Scientific. We had a terrific project with Fisher Scientific at their facility outside of Pittsburgh called Blaudox. And when we started there, what they would do is they would pick to a belt, and then at the end of the belt, there'd be packers. And there were two packers side by side. We asked the first guy, what's your solution when this stuff comes at you? How do you, and usually because it was an industrial line, there were quite a few units in a box. It wasn't just one or two. It'd be 10, 12, things like that. Things like test tubes, uh, Bunsen burners, uh, pipettes, things like that. So the first guy said, what I do is, well, first of all, all the packers would do the first step. They would assemble the box. And then secondly, they would tear off a sheet of paper from a nice fresh roll and put a piece of paper at the bottom of the box and then they would start loading the material in. So the question was, how do you load the material in? And the first guy said, well, I put all the, uh, the small stuff in first, sort of build an inverse pyramid. Then I put the big stuff on top, and then I close the box. The other guy beside him says, nah, 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 I do it the other way. I put the big stuff in first, then the small stuff on top. 
my reaction was, I may not be a genius here, guys, but you can't both be right. One of you guys has got it right, and the other one is wrong, I think. We're going to figure this out. And what we learned was that the best way is to put the big stuff on the bottom and build a pyramid and then put the plastic peanuts in place. But because this company had a lot of breakable materials, every time the parcel carrier would drop that box, you'd get broken glass. So what we did was we actually inverted the box that they packed the way they needed to pack for efficiency, but then we put the labels so that they turned the box upside down and all the plastic peanuts were on the bottom. So when the parcel carrier dropped the box, it hit the plastic peanuts, not the glass. And the basic question we asked everybody was, why do you put that fresh sheet of paper on the bottom? Well, it was to protect the product. Well, I think you can already figure the answer here, Harry, that that does nothing. If you crumple the paper, it might provide some value. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and the company's money putting a sheet of paper in the bottom of the box. But that had been done for about 20 years in that company. Somebody had come up with that idea once upon a time and started to use it. And the typical issue in most of these packing operations is that I learned from Bill, who learned from Bob, who learned from Jimmy 20 years ago. And every time that tribal knowledge passes down, the high points make it to the next guy, a bunch of stuff disappears. So by the time you get to the third or fourth generation of tribal knowledge, it has no relationship to the guy, the guy that originally started it. We lose all kinds of information in there and misdirected ideas get passed down and people accept that as gospel truth. So you really want to get into, this is one of the key things for PickPack, conduct a training session. I would, I would admonish a film. We conducted a filming session for Fisher Scientific and I just found the photo of the guy that actually did the film for us. He was our worker. His name was Oscar. He had a vest, a warm-up vest with a big O on it. So he was the guy that actually did the introduction. Hi, my name's Oscar. I'm from Blaunox. And I'm here to tell you that you can teach an old dog new tricks. Let me show you what I learned. And then he actually conducted the exercise right on film. He told me later he was nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof, didn't sleep at all the night before. He was so worried about being on camera. But he did a wonderful job, and it, it just added tremendous credibility that we got a guy right from the production line to talk about it. And uh, we gave him a nice big certificate to take his wife out for dinner. But he was excellent at getting the message across to his friends. It sounds like you've kind of touched on my next question. I think we're, we're like halfway through, and I think with all the savings and opportunities people have heard to to this point, I think your phone is going to ring off the hook. So, so what is a typical assignment for supply chain optimers look like? First thing we, we like to do is to walk the facility that occasionally because of, well, it could be clearance issues, it could be distance. But anyway, the ideal thing is for us to walk the facility. We'd like to see the packing station see how the packing is conducted. We'd like to see how the picking is conducted so that we understand the operation. Is there a put wall? Is there an A-frame? Things like that. What makes that operation different? I remember going into one big operation, Harry, where for space, they did a very smart thing. They put the uh, conveyor line up close to the roof just to get it up off the floor. While that conveyor line had been constructed so close to the roof that it limited the size of the boxes that could be conveyed because the box has to be conveyed with the open flaps. So if that line had been dropped six inches, we could have recommended a bigger box, for example. So things like that, we want to look at what actually makes this operation different and are there any, are there any hiccups in there or any kind of bottlenecks that we need to be aware of. It's one thing to go to a computer program and say, this should work. And then I hand it to an operator like you who says, well, gee, this isn't going to work because you didn't think about this in my operation. So we like to take a walk through 
And then the biggest issue for every one of these projects is data, customer data. We need to know which items went into which box, what the weight in the cube of those products is, so that we can look, start to look at alternative boxes. That then one of the things we do is we compute the cube utilization for the client. And typically, this is one thing that has improved, Harry. If you and I did this podcast five years ago, I would have told you, and this is the number we use for many years, about 60% cube utilization is what the typical e-commerce company gets. They're using about 60% of the usable space in a box, which means they're shipping 40% filler and air. That number has gotten better. It's probably close to 65% now, but it's extremely difficult to get into 75, 80, 80% level. We did a project for a big national company, 145 retail stores, huge online presence. They told us they knew they weren't good, but they had no way of measuring it. Their cube utilization outbound was about 40%, which meant they were shipping 60% filler and air. And I don't think you have to go to school very long to say that 60% filler and air going out the door is not a good equation. So basically, we start to look at options, and we do this through software that if you're with six boxes, we'll start to look at 12, 15, and we don't have a magic number. We try a number of different boxes to see, is this a benefit to add that box? Let's try another box. And then we'll also rule out some of the current boxes that, in fact, the client that I just talked about, if I remember correctly, they had something like uh, 16 boxes, and we maybe knocked out seven out of the 16, saying they really weren't appropriate. They weren't efficient for that combination of products. So we replaced the inefficient boxes with more efficient ones with better cube utilization. And then we added several other boxes on top of that to kind of put the icing on the cake. So, and then we have the client test and we'll have somebody on site. We'll have an engineer available if, uh, because uh, there, there is some packaging engineering, but the other issue that pops up, Harry, very often with clients is that they think of this as a packaging engineering exercise. And it's really not because a packaging engineer's forte is designing boxes that will protect the product. I've got a fancy light. It can't break. I've got something that's very very large and uh, fragile uh, dishes, for example, or I, I've got uh, sporting goods that can't really pack, ride together very well. That they, uh, how, do, how do you get a bat and a ball to ride together? Well, obviously, they're both, both round at one end. They're, they're not going to ride together very well. You've got to figure out some other, other solutions. But when you start to get into this mathematics, that's not a packaging engineering issue. To me, e-commerce is really it's a mathematical issue and it's a freight issue. So why would you put a packaging engineer on that? They don't know mathematics that well. It's not that again, they're foolish, but mathematics is not their number one objective. And then most of them are not knowledgeable about the UPS and the FedEx rules and dim weight and so on, that that's kind of an acquired knowledge. So we attack it with mathematics and we attack it with freight knowledge and generate a better solution than you would get from a packaging engineer. So you've had, I know I said 500 of these engagements over the years, you've been at this a very, very long time. I'm a numbers guy. My customers are probably numbers people to the extent, right, that they can process them. So I'm going to walk away from here knowing 12 rectangles, over 300 possible solutions. I'm also going to walk away with, hey, well, we've gotten better at shipping product with our boxes. We've figured out how to go from 60 to 65% cube utilization. Tell me, in a typical Jack Ampuja engagement and over the years, What's the percent that you've been able to save people? You know, what number can they walk away yep. with from yep. a savings percentage? Yeah, excellent question, Harry. That's that's usually the deciding point for most people when I go to talk to them that 
when they're focused on the box, they don't think about the numbers as being worthwhile. And for example, I, I went to visit a company in Boston that did electronics. They were owned by a French parent, and I got a call from them before I went out there saying, Jack, just be ready. The president from France is going to sit in on the meeting. He wants to understand what does packaging have to do with freight? I uh, just never made the connection. But uh, these are the numbers we've worked out over the years, Harry, that for a manufacturing firm, and it could be it could be something you self-manufacture, it could be something that's made for you in Vietnam or Pakistan. So you've got uh, the cost of the box, got handling, storage, and freight. So those are the four components for a manufacturer. If you add those four components up per SKU, the typical number is 10%, 10% cost reduction. We've seen numbers 18 20%. Very good, adept, Fortune 100 firms, it'll be 5%, 6%, but 5 6% of a big company, that's a lot of money. And then when you get to e-commerce, e-commerce, it's more difficult, it's less efficient. So for e-commerce, the numbers are, again, the box, the filler, packing labor, and then freight. Those components together, for pick pack, the target is 15%, and we've, we've delivered that client after client. A 15. So I would tell you that a typical customer of mine probably spends about $2 million a year in parcel. Yep. Right. So 15% of that is $300,000. That is not unusual. And that's not chump change. That's a significant no, number. No. no the, the, and I guess the real question for everybody on, on your customer side of the equation, Harry, is what else can they do to take costs down by that amount? I advise clients that don't go to a company like Amware and try to corner Harry Draypush to say that you've got to cut my costs. They've got to take some actions to get more efficient that there's nobody that I know that's getting rich in the uh, logistics arena, that it's a pretty low margin business. And so I steer them to say, you've got to get more efficient. If you get more efficient, now we've got something to talk about. And that's essentially what we bring to the table here is more efficiency. If you can get more efficient, then the cost can come down. So I want to repeat that for my customers out there. I'm in a very low margin business for sure. Nobody's getting rich on it. You're right. So while my customers are trying to call you up and get an engagement, what are some of the practical advice that they could put into use immediately while they're waiting for you to come and help them do an analysis? What specific action steps can they do? Yeah. yeah uh, so a uh, number one would be the training of the people. That's a pretty easy thing you can do internally. They don't need you or me to, well, if, that, if, if they're doing it internally, if they're using you, then the balls in your court, but typically a lot of your clients, you would do some for them, they would do some on their own, depending on the region and so on. So the first thing to do would be to train people internally to say that these are some of the best practices that don't do this, don't do that. And a lot of it can just come from observation that you don't need an expert to come in to look at what people are doing. And then to look at, can you add some additional boxes? And in fact, one of the things that I, I'm a big advocate of, gets back to the technology, Harry, that for somebody to really be successful, number one, and I know that at 3PL like Amway, that you've got good technology in place and that your business is driven by information so that you already know the weight in the cube of every product that you handle, every product that comes into the facility. You cannot do that without technology. So you need to create that database. And then secondly is that there is software that will, will make a packer better. That One of the things that we've learned also is that 25% of the time when somebody in a manual operation is grabbing a box, I've got a pile of things I need to put into a box. I've got a choice of box two or three. I look at number two and I think it's going to be kind of tight, but I can't take the risk of packing that and then unpacking it. So I just go to box number three. 
I can come back later with computer analysis to say it actually would have fit into number two. So there's that whole advent of a computer-aided box selection where a computer will direct the packer to say, you really should use this box. The stuff will fit into this particular box. Because in a typical manual operation, 25% of the time, that order packer grabs the wrong box because he's paid on or, or pushed into productivity. His job is to get stuff out the door. He can't take the time to start thinking and reevaluating. He's just going to grab the box and go. So if the computer can say, this is the right box, match the box up with the order, you're going to be halfway home. He's going to get a whole lot more efficient with that. But, but I, there, there are things that can be done internally. And then uh, there's certain box, and I can advise anyone, there are certain box ratios of length, width, and height that are more efficient than others. Then it's that whole box salesman routine, Harry, that when you pay me to sell boxes, I'm going to sell boxes. That's what I get paid for. That's my number one criteria, not worrying about somebody's somebody else's efficiency. So there are ratios of length, width, and height that we can quickly guide someone towards saying, take these boxes out. I'll replace it with another box, the same cube will be inherently cheaper and more effective for you. You're right. If I'm a packer and clearly they're pushed, they've got KPIs they have to hit. They've got productivity standards they have to hit. They don't have time to take out, measure, put a ruler in, put things in a box, take it back out, try a different box. It just doesn't work that way. And it's not just about productivity. It's that you're pushing through so many orders a day. You've got to get them out the door. So close enough becomes good enough. But there's a lot of dollars that are involved in that decision potentially for customers. Yeah, one other feature, Harry, that uh, is helpful, and that's the package shippers, the uh, parcel companies, particularly FedEx and uh, UPS. They're both very capable, competent companies with fairly large staffs that advise people that get them in and have them look at what you're doing. Many times they can come up with some ideas that wouldn't occur to you because they see hundreds of these kinds of companies and they want their customers to succeed. They're not out there to try to add more costs that if you're more effective and more efficient, you're going to sell more product and they're going to benefit. So they want to help you. That's usually a free piece of advice. They get them in, have them look. If they can't offer you anything, you're no further behind than you are today. They might have some ideas that could take some cost out for you. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at amwarefulfillment.com. Jeez, that's uh, that's great advice. So, where can people go to find out more about you and uh, and supply chain optimizers online? Well, our website, supplychainoptimizers.com. We've got a bunch of case studies on their uh, photos and things. And then my email is connected to the website. You can contact me. They'll find me on the internet pretty easily as long as they get the spelling of my name. But the easiest thing is supplychainoptimizers.com. We have a sister division. You'll get a kick out of Harry being in the business. It's called e-commerce, ecommerceoptimizers.com. And we created that specifically because I've crossed paths with many companies where I've come in to talk to them about supply chain optimization. And the pushback from the client is, we're an e-commerce company, Jack. We're really not in the supply chain. So we created another division called e-commerce optimizers for the people that don't want to fool around with supply chain because they're e-commerce companies. 
We've been speaking with Jack Ampuja, who's the president of Supply Chain Optimizers. Jack, uh, I can't believe where the time went. It's been great. We've got to do this again. Yeah, so it's a lot of, lot of fun, Harry. I always enjoy connecting with you. I like talking to people who are down in the trenches, understand the nuts and the bolts, because that's where the money is made. That's where the money is lost. And you're certainly a classic example of somebody who understands the details and knows what the cost drivers are. Also open to new ideas and new concepts. I love dealing with people like that because I can really get things done. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure, Harry. Pleasure, Harry.